Hi, and welcome to Adventures in Ventureland, a rainmaking venture studio podcast, exploring the weird and wacky world of venture building. Together, we'll interview founders and corporate innovators to explore venture building from all angles. My name's Hattie Willis, and I'm an associate principal at Rainmaking Venture Studio. Today, I'm joined by Tessa Clark, founder and CEO of Olio. Before she became a founder, Tessa worked at both Wonga and Dyson, but it was really while growing up and working on her parents' farm that she developed the love and appreciation for food and the work that goes into producing it that led her to Olio. She met her co-founder, Sasha Celestial Pone, while doing an MBA at Stanford in 2002. And years later, when they were both on maternity leave in 2015, they came back together to create Olio. The pain they're solving is clear. We all know we waste a ton. According to RAP, the government's waste advisory body, the UK throws away around £17 billion worth of food every year. And 70% of that is household waste. Olio wants to help, encouraging both households and businesses like supermarkets, restaurants or coffee shops to rehome what would otherwise be wasted. They make money from charging businesses a fee to collect food that would otherwise be dumped. And they have 5,000 food waste heroes or volunteers trained to collect the surplus, take pictures and post them on the Olio app where they can be claimed and picked up by neighbours for free. So far, Tessa and Sasha have raised $60 million for Olio. It's used in 51 countries and in the UK has 2.5 million users who shed 7 million portions of food. Tessa, thanks so much for joining us. If you can just give us a bit of background, how did the company start? Where did the idea come from? So the metaphorical light bulb moment for Olio took place six years ago now. I was living in Switzerland for work with my family and moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men said that we had to throw away all of our uneaten food. Now, I'm a farmer's daughter, so I hate food waste and wasn't prepared to do this. So much the irritation of the moving men, I stopped packing and instead bundled up my baby and toddler and set out onto the streets with this food, hoping to find someone to give it to and failed miserably. I thought about knocking on my neighbor's doors and realized that would just be really inefficient. I didn't have the time. And even if they were in, it would be perhaps a bit awkward and embarrassing. So I went back to my apartment and wasn't to be defeated. And so when the removal men weren't looking, I smuggled the non-perishable food into the bottom of my packing boxes. And that was the point in time when I realized this is crazy the length I've gone to to avoid throwing away food. I know there's an app for absolutely everything. Why isn't there a simple app where I can just advertise that I have this food, a neighbor can request it, they can pop around and pick it up. And now there is. Brilliant. And so from kind of concept, how did you get started? What was the first thing you did? I chatted to a few people about this idea of a neighbor-to-neighbor food sharing app and most people thought I was crazy and that perhaps baby brain had got the better of me and I should maybe get back to work pretty quickly. But one of the people I told was my now co-founder, Sasha, who immediately got the idea. And so a critical part of our journey was her agreeing to work with me on this. We then went through actually a very methodical process to go from idea to product in market. The first stage was we did market research to understand if this problem was anything bigger than my personal experience. And what we discovered absolutely blew our brains. So very briefly, globally, a third of all the food we produce each year gets thrown away, which is worth over a trillion US dollars. Alongside that, we have 800 million people, which is one in nine of us going to bed hungry every night who could be fed on a quarter of the food that we waste in the Western world. And as if that weren't bad enough, the environmental impact of food waste is absolutely devastating. 
if it were to be a country, food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. And that's the position that we're in today. As we project forward to the future, we discovered that we have another 2.2 billion people joining the planet. In order to feed us all, according to the FAO, we need to increase global food production by 50%. And today we have absolutely no idea how we're going to achieve it. So to us, it seemed crazy that we're throwing away a third of all the food we produce and we're scratching our heads about how to feed a population of 10 billion people and how not to boil the planet. And what really stunned us was that in a country such as the UK, half of all food waste takes place in the home. So the average UK family throws away 730 pounds sterling of food each year that could have been eaten, which collectively adds up to 14 billion pounds of perfectly good economic value going mm -hmm. to landfill each year. So we did that desk research and there was an enormous sort of tick in the box for is this a big problem the next thing we did was to try and understand if it was a problem that anyone cared about and so we created a market research survey we distributed it via facebook groups and we had a statistically representative number of people respond and the key data point was that one in three people told us they were physically pained throwing away good food now, we use deliberately extreme language like physically pained because we wanted to filter out for people going, yeah, food waste is bad. And so discovering that one in three people told us they were physically pained throwing away food told us that actually this was not only a big problem on paper, it was also a problem that people cared about. But that still didn't prove our core hypothesis, which was that neighbours would share food with one another or arguably strangers would share food with one another. And we wanted to test that out before sinking our life savings, building an app that potentially no one would want. And so we thought the best way to test that hypothesis was through inviting 12 people who had said they were physically pained throwing away good food from that market research survey, who all lived near to one another. They didn't know each other. They didn't know us. And we asked them to take part in an experiment for two weeks where we put them on a closed WhatsApp group and we said, if any of you have any spare food that you don't want during this week, here's a group of neighbors who might be interested in having it. And we waited with bated breath, uh, I think for over 24 hours for anyone to actually post into that WhatsApp group. And someone did. And then that kickstarted quite a lot of neighbor to neighbor sharing that took place via that WhatsApp group in North London. And at the end of that two week proof of concept, I guess you could call it, we met face to face with all of those participants for the first time, which was surreal in coffee shops all over and they essentially gave us three critical pieces of feedback the first was you absolutely have to build this which was great the second was it only needs to be slightly better than whatsapp mm. and that was probably the most valuable piece of advice we've ever been given and the third piece of feedback they gave was i'd like to help how can i help and that was the genesis of what is today our ambassador program. So once we had gone through that process, that gave us the conviction that it was an enormous problem. People cared about it and they were prepared to take action and share and pick up food from a neighbor slash stranger. So that meant that Sasha and I then were prepared to invest essentially our life savings. And we worked with a development agency in Bristol called Simple Web who gave us a discount on their day rates in exchange for a small equity stake in the company when we did our first round of financing. And that was really important because it made the whole app development affordable mm. for us. 
And we gave ourselves, Sasha and I uh, incorporated the company on the 9th of February, and it was five months to the day later on the 9th of July that we launched the pilot version of Olio in the App Store. So we did everything that we've just discussed end to end from the very beginning desk research through to launching the App Store in five months. And the reason why that was so fast was because we were both on maternity leave and we knew that we had to make a go of Olio, whatever that might be by the end of that year. Otherwise, we'd have to go back and get proper jobs, which neither of us wanted to do. So we knew that making a go of Olio would require fundraising. We knew we'd need a couple of months worth of data. And so that gave us the imperative to get the MVP version out and launched as quickly as we did. It's incredible to listen to, A, because you were on maternity leave, both of you, so it wasn't like you didn't have your hands full, (laughs) which is genuinely so inspiring how much you got done so fast. And the other thing that strikes me as you're talking is a lot of the language you're using, find your hypothesis, experimenting with the the smallest version, is very lean startup methodology. Was that something you'd come across before you started the business, or is that something you've learned about more afterwards? So that was not something that either of us had come across prior to founding Olio, but we're both just massive learners, hugely curious. And so we very quickly threw ourselves into the world of startups and we recognized that we had everything to learn. Two key books that we read at the very beginning of that journey. The first one was The Mom Test by a guy (laughs) called Rob Fitzpatrick. That book was just this small little pocket full of genius. It's an easy read, It doesn't take you long, but it's very challenging read because it forces you to answer some quite uncomfortable questions. Because I think as a founder, you just have a massive bias, which is you only want to hear the positive stuff. And then if you're asking the wrong people, they're only going to give you the positive stuff. And that can be a really dangerous place to be. Reading that book is like taking a freezing cold shower, but really important. And then the second one was The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. And that has been a bit of a Bible in terms of the philosophy that it advocates. And certainly speaking from myself personally, I, prior to finding earlier, had a 15-year corporate career working for generally pretty large organizations, several of which had a constant sort of challenge of wanting to be more innovative and to move faster. And when you read The Lean Startup and then embrace that way of working, you realize just how much time is wasted and how much money is wasted (laughs) navel gazing, doing stuff that doesn't add value, that doesn't tackle your your hypothesis early enough. That's something that we've never lost, actually. Everything we do now, we start off with an MVP. And if it can be done manually before automating, we will always do it manually before automating just so we can learn. I love that. It's music to my ears. My background is teaching lean startup and customer development. So for anyone who's listening who hasn't come across either of these two books, they're 100% the first two books I would recommend for anyone thinking about becoming a founder of REITs. The lean startup is essentially trying to get you to test and learn rather than assume everything up front. Treat your idea like a big pile of guesses, exactly like Tessa outlined for Olio. And Mum Test is an exceptional practical guide to going and talking to customers and uh, not getting lied to because they want to compliment you, which is always the risk. Yeah. And I'll give a real example to bring that to life, the importance of an MVP. So ahead of reading that book and ahead of running our proof of concept, we were convinced that if we were building an app 
to connect strangers to share food, then surely part of the MVP had to be user ratings and profiles and stuff like that. So we were sat in our ivory tower and that was very clear to us. However, once we did that proof of concept, and most importantly, we spoke to the early adopters who have a very different threshold of requirements than your mainstream. And you've just got to really focus on the early adopters who are way more forgiving than everybody else. And we realized that actually user ratings and reviews and all that sort of stuff was not slightly better than WhatsApp. That was significantly better than WhatsApp. And so we launched this neighbor's neighbor food sharing app without user ratings or reviews. And we didn't in fact build those pieces of functionality until I think two years after we launched, because actually our users, once the product was out and in the market, told us 20 other things that were more important to be built first. And so our MVP could only do, I think it was about five things. And we just thought, what is that critical path of things that are required to connect two strangers to give away food? Someone has to be able to add a listing someone else has to be able to see it they have to be able to message and the person who's added it has to be able to take it off the app that's it no sign up no profiles nothing fancy at all it's a really important discipline i think to take with you on your journey because so often you will be wrong in your assumptions that you're making about your audience because you are an audience of one and in no way uh, representative of the larger user base that you'll be hoping to unlock and so Obviously, it's evolved a long way since those initial features. It's grown beyond just simple food sharing. You've now got businesses involved, big supermarket chains, coffee shops, and even your craft marketplace where people can put up things that they've made locally as well. So what's driven that evolution? Is it the business model? Is it just the user feedback? I'll make it specific and, and pick out some of those. So the very first one that we did that you mentioned was introduced non-food. So Olio launched mm. purely connecting people to their neighbors to give away food. But pretty quickly, our users discovered that worked really well. And so to them, it was quite obvious to think, I've got this random shower head that for whatever reason I don't need, or this bottle of Vanish cleaning product that I don't need. Olio works really well for food, so why don't I put it on there? And that then created a really weird user experience because you'd be going through all this delicious looking food and then you'd suddenly hit the shower head or Vanish. Initially, I was busy deleting all of those listings but very quickly realized, hang on a minute, this isn't scalable. Plus, we hate waste of any variety. Mm. And adding in non-food just leverages everything that we're currently doing. So why are we fighting this? Let's expand to encompass this. And we also felt that in terms of our core mission has never changed. That is solving the problem of food waste in the home. But we pretty early on recognized that food sharing between neighbors doesn't have a precedent, but actually giving away of non-food items does have a precedent. And so if people want to start off by giving away non-food and then evolve to become part of the community, Mm. they get how Olio works, then it would be a very natural progression to give away food. So it worked from that perspective. And then it also worked because from pretty much day one, demand has outstripped supply on Olio substantially. And so what that means, certainly in the early days, was that any one point in time, you might go on the app and not see much near you. Mm. And when people didn't see many things near them, what we learned was they assumed there weren't many people near them. And so they disengaged. And we thought, actually, non-food can 
significantly increase the amount of supply that's coming on the app, which will give people that sense that it's busy and it's active, which will then encourage them to go ahead and share their items. So for all those reasons, the introduction of non-food was on mission. It was solving the customer pain point and it was just making the product more useful to more people. It's interesting as a user when I downloaded the app one of the first things that I was shown it was there are 1100 plus people around me on the app and I thought oh, that's way more than I'd thought. It does yeah. keep you wanting to engage because you think there must be more on here today. So we've done a ton again I think a critical thing of being a founder is just being insanely curious. I've done kind of a mini PhD on behavioral psychology and the power of social norms. The biggest predictor that someone's going to do something is that everybody else is doing it. (laughs) But how do we get everybody else to be doing it in the first place to convert that person? So you're in that sort of weird catch-22 situation. And so throughout the Olio app, you will see a number of things that we are doing to reinforce to people that lots of other people are doing this. This is normal. This is established behavior. So showing people through onboarding, how many other people are signed up near them is a great example of that. Another one is when you look at listings, we've got a little eyeball, which tells you how many other people have seen that mm. listing. And it's really subtle and it's designed really subtly. But again, it's just another touch point to remind you that this is widespread behavior and that then encourages people to engage. And so within this marketplace, you've obviously got neighbors learning to neighbors. And then you've also introduced these big companies who are also helping with that supply. Can you tell us a bit about those partnerships, how the business model evolved? Because they're the ones now who are paying for the app. Is that right? They're the main revenue stream. Again, that evolved. I think it's really important when you're an entrepreneur, you start off at point A, which is knowing absolutely nothing other than you want to get to Z. What's really important is to not deviate from Z, but to be really open-minded about the path that you pick to most effectively get there. And that path will change, and so it should. So something that is considered anathema in corporates often is the concept of a U-turn or anything like that. Whereas in a startup, if you get better data (laughs) that suggests you should be doing something else, then you start doing something else. So the Food Waste Heroes program arose because pretty early on, we had another conundrum to address, which was the fact that our early adopters hated food waste, which meant they didn't generate any. So they had nothing to give away. And we had retrospectively, somewhat naively, hoped that local businesses would use Olio, local cafe or bakery or deli, at the end of the day to bring traffic into their store, which would then drive brand awareness and cross-sell and upsell and all that kind of good stuff. Now, what we found was that those businesses just did not have the time to be messing around with an app because it was outside their core operations. And so we found ourselves in this situation where the early adopters didn't use the app because they didn't have any food waste and the businesses didn't use the app because they were too busy. And so a food sharing app with no food is pretty useless. And we thought, why don't we solve this problem by taking the people who have time but no food waste and match them with the businesses that have lots of food waste and no time And that is a really effective way for us to crank supply into our two-sided marketplace. And from day one, we'd learned that supply was the constraint. And we also quickly realized that it would be far quicker to sign up a local business, which then delivered a large volume of highly predictable, highly desirable supply into the marketplace, 
than to go house by house to deliver the same amount of supply. And so for all those reasons, we created the Food Waste Heroes program. And how it works is we recruit volunteers via the app. We train them online on our proprietary food safety management system. We then match them with their local business, put them in a squad of volunteers who support that business. And then on your allotted time and day, you pop out of your house, go across the road. Tesco, for example, is our largest client or Pret-a-Manger or someone like that. You collect all of their unsold food at the end of the day. You take it home. You add it to the app. Within minutes, your neighbors are requesting it. Minutes later, they're popping around and picking it up. And that takes that food from having been a waste stream in the store to instead, one to two hours later, fully redistributed into the homes of the local community. And at the moment, those businesses are having to pay a waste contractor mm. to take that food off to landfill or at best anaerobic digestion. And instead, they're now paying us to ensure that food is fully redistributed into the homes of the local community with all the positive social benefit that's having, but just importantly, the massive environmental benefit that it's having as well. You're listening to Adventures in Ventureland, a rainmaking venture studio podcast. This episode, we're speaking to Tessa Clark, founder of Olio. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you are, please do like, share and subscribe at the end for more founder and corporate innovator interviews. So the question I have to ask, how has the pandemic changed the need for the app? The pandemic has had a dramatic effect on Olio, it's fair to say. Within the first 24 hours of the lockdown being announced, it was deeply unclear whether a neighbour-to-neighbour food sharing app could continue to operate. But Sasha and I worked with our food safety lawyer, worked with our environmental health officer, just as importantly, listened to our community. And our community told us that we had a responsibility to stay operating during a global pandemic because Olio was a critical, for some people, lifeline Mm. uh, source of food at a time perhaps when they were isolating at home or unable to get into stores, etc. And so we very quickly moved the model to be a 100% no contact pickup model to ensure that we were compliant with the COVID guidelines. And for the first sort of 10 days or so of lockdown, we had about 20% decline in activity. And then from that moment onwards, we've experienced pretty much hockey stick growth. And so we 5X'd last year versus the year before in terms of the number of listings coming on the app and I think there's a couple of reasons for that so the first one is you only have to see a few photographs of empty supermarket shelves to realize on a really visceral level that food is our life source without it we die Uh, and that means it's incredibly valuable and a picture says a thousand words that overnight transformed as a nation our relationship with food and it meant that many people who'd never valued food that much before suddenly started to recognize its value. I think the other thing the pandemic did was people became a lot more aware of the hardship and the hunger that exists in their local communities. And very instinctively, we were told to stay home and help. For a lot of people, just staying home did not feel like enough. They wanted to do more. And so getting involved with Olio and giving away meals to local families, etc., via the platform was a really effective way of doing that i think the fact that we were based at home also meant that we kind of did a bit of a nationwide marie condo and people were just cleaning out their house 
of stuff they just didn't want to sell. They didn't want to ship half across the country. They just wanted it gone and they wanted it to have a second life with a neighbor who'd be happy to take it. And so that really pushed listings up. And then I think finally, just the logistics of organizing a pickup were much, much easier because everybody's home and everybody was available pretty much all the time to mm. do a pickup. So for all of those reasons, we experienced enormous growth last year. I was looking at some of the stats around, for instance, food banks and, and who is new to a food bank. At the beginning of the pandemic, more than half of people who were going to food banks had never been to one before. Are you seeing a change in the people who are using the app as well? I think I saw something like 80,000 new users. So Olio now has 2.7 million people have joined us. We've given away by the platform 11 million portions of food in terms of these sort of demographic of people i don't think we've seen a massive change because what we've seen in terms of the people using olio but we've seen that many of the people who are using olio have had a significant change of their fortunes and mm. so how they're using olio might have changed they might have gone from giving away stuff to instead needing to pick stuff up and similarly we see it the whole time the other way around people are going through a really tough patch olio gets them through it and then once they're back up and running again, they become some of our most active contributors giving back to the community. But we've always seen that the Olio audience has been predominantly female. So our user base is between two thirds and three quarters female. We have all age ranges represented from 18 to pensioners and everything in between. But we do over-index on that kind of millennial audience of 25 to 44 year olds. And we have all ends of the social spectrum using the app. And, and that's part of the beauty of it. The really important thing about Olio is that we position Olio and Olioing as being part of modern, sustainable, everyday living. It's common sense. That's what being part of a community is all about. Why on earth would you throw something perfectly good in the bin when a neighbor in your community would love it? But we don't attach any requirement for someone to be in need to use mm. the app or not. And that's really important because if you are in need, you're just like anybody else. There's no stigma associated with it. You don't have to go to your GP. There's no quotas. And that is really important for people's dignity if they are having a bit of a tough time. The fact that we don't say that Olio is only for those who are in need. Mm. Olio is for everybody. And the really important part of why that's the case is because sadly, there is far more food thrown away in this country than hungry people could ever eat. So if we're going to make a dent in our food waste problem, we need everybody to get involved. What are the biggest challenges that you're still wrestling with today when it comes to the app? The number one challenge, which has been the number one challenge for forever, has been encouraging people to take that leap of faith and to try giving away some food for the first time. And a lot of people might be sat in their homes thinking, will anyone really want this head of broccoli, these two tins of soup that are out of date or whatever it might be? And the answer is a massive yes. So half of all the food added to the app is requested within 24 minutes. It's insane. So there's absolutely no shortage of people who want to get out of the house, go for a walk, pop around, to see a neighbor and pick up some free food. Our challenge is encouraging people to believe that is the case mm. and to make their stuff available for their neighbors to have. But that is something that has continued to improve over time as we're starting to build up network effects, as Olio is becoming normalized, as more and more people know people who are using Olio. Uh, and as we've continued to improve our product and use all of that sort of behavioral psychology insights that we've learned, 
to encourage people on that journey. And what are the main growth channels? You said you get a lot of millennials. Are you very active on social media? Is that a big channel for you? You've got a lot of press because it's the kind of story we want to be reporting right now. Yes. So in terms of paid media, our number one channel has been Facebook slash Instagram. Much as I hate to say it, you can't beat it in terms of being incredibly cost-effective route to market. In terms of other channels, social media has been really important for us and we've invested quite a lot of time in that from day one. It's been important for us in terms of driving education and awareness about the problem of food waste, but also just the problem or opportunity around sustainable living more broadly. And we're now, certainly on Instagram, we're almost considered an influencer in our own right. So I think we've got about 90,000 followers and that's continuing to grow pretty rapidly. And that's all been acquired very organically. So social media has been important for us and we have our ambassador program. So we now have 60,000 people who have reached out to offer to volunteer to help spread the word about Olio in their Mm. local community. And that has not happened by accident. It's absolutely been by design at multiple touch points in the user journey we ask people to help us and if you ask people to help you then quite a few of them do and Mm -hmm. so we take those ambassadors uh, on a journey so they can either be a digital ambassador which means they're promoting Olio online or they can be an ambassador spreading the word in their local community and we equip people with posters letters flyers old school guerrilla marketing style tools and equipment so that they can spread the word about Olio in their local community And then PR has also been another very effective channel for us. It's a really significant portion of people who are advocating for Olio in their local community. And the really important thing to recognize is that they can represent Olio best. They know how to Mm. describe it and sell it and position it in a way that we never could sat Mm. at group. So you have fundraiser and impact startup how do you find that investors look for you to balance revenue and impact in terms of your operations is that a challenge or do they lend very naturally to each other i think a really important philosophical point is that too often people try and position revenue and impact as if they're diametrically opposed as if they're pulling in the opposite direction in the ideal scenario, they should be mutually reinforcing. And that's what they are at Olio. Our North Star metric as an organization is the number of listings coming onto the app. Mm-hmm. And that is where the impact is taking place. Because by the way, pretty much everything that goes on the app gets picked up. So that's where the impact is taking place in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions that are being saved, the water that is being saved, the social connection that's being made, the nutritional value that's being saved, all that kind of good stuff. But also that is where we will be monetizing. That's where the value exchange is taking place. That's where free stuff is being given away. So there is no conflict there. But as with every variable that you're managing in an organization, you're constantly trading off how much you're focusing on one versus the other at this particular point in time. And so for the first couple of years of our existence, we were really just focused on proving out the core hypotheses and building earlier to some semblance of scale, because this is never going to be a model that you could monetize and and be done on 10,000 people. We're not a mortgages company, for example. So it was always going to be a model that had to get to scale. So we had to prove that we could get to scale. And there was no point when you've got very limited resources, when you've got two developers, you don't want 
their time to be spent monetizing the square root of nobody. You want their time to be spent growing the network. And thankfully, we had investors who really understood that much more Silicon Valley style approach, which was build it first, grow it first, and then there'll be multiple ways in which you can monetize. I'm also extremely glad that we did not start monetizing from day one, because I think we've had three different monetization hypotheses that at various points we could have built. And for whatever reason, they've been competed away or they don't exist in the marketplace anymore. And I'm just so glad that we didn't waste our resources mm. building those things then when the reality is the product was still not formed yet mm. or not fully formed. And it's as you fully form the product that new revenue opportunities emerged that you would never have imagined. So the Food Waste Heroes program being a classic example of something that we didn't plan to build when we set out that actually became our first revenue stream. And another example would be the made section of the app, which you touched on briefly that we have recently launched connecting people to sell homemade food and handmade crafts to their neighbors. At the moment, that's all been done entirely for free, but you can envisage a scenario whereby we'd start to monetize on that, given that we're providing a lot of value uh, to the sellers. But again, that's not something we imagined we were going to do three years ago. Mm. So we've been really focused on growing the network and rounding out the product proposition. Now, I think it's fair to say we're at a pivot point where we're now starting to focus a lot more on monetization because we've got to the right level of scale and we're getting close to being there in terms of the core tenets of the product. So you needed that investor faith along the way in order you, to grow to the point where you could actually open up those monetization Yeah, we did, which is why we had to select our investors very carefully. I learned along the way that there was a special breed of investor that we were looking for, which is in the absolute minority, but they're what I call a conviction-based investor. And they were people who were absolutely bought into our mission and our vision made extraordinary amounts of money. You, you need to be here for the long haul, but we believe that the prize at the end of that will be really significant. And how much of an activity is it for you calculating the, the hatch itself? Because I've spoken to startups who fall on very different ends of the spectrum on this from pouring thousands into getting reports generated from universities to try and track just every ounce of impact they're delivering. And obviously on the, the website, it's very clear that you've selected some very trackable metrics about CO2 emissions being saved, water being saved, and the food waste itself. I have focused just on food for now. We did it via sampling analysis. So we pull off a representative sample of listings and then get interns to literally code them up to see what are the items in there? What is the weight of them? What is the price of them? We then worked with government bodies to get the right data for what is the typical CO2 emissions. The impact data then just pops out each week. And we started off just doing that sampling analysis maybe once a year. Then we realized we need to do it twice a year. Then we realized we need to do it quarterly. And now we've built some more features in the app that allow our users to tell us how many items, for example, are in a listing rather than us doing it by sampling analysis. And we will just continue to refine and improve that methodology. I think the other thing that's really important sustainability and sustainable living is the fact that most people think that what they do doesn't count. Yeah. So if we can demonstrate to them, actually, you have done this much, which might not by itself sound like a huge amount, but look at what the community as a whole has done. I think that's really empowering and engaging for people. And this is 
in terms of how we share and present that data, we've still got a long way to go in terms of really improving that. But from what we've done so far, our community seems to respond really well to it. And they seem quite rightly so, super proud mm. of what they've achieved. It sounds a bit more exciting to get those results than your Spotify unwrapped at the end of the year. <laughs> Slightly bigger picture, but leading on from what we were discussing just now, is the fact that the world is pretty depressing right now. <laughs> and as we look to the future, arguably it just gets even more depressing as the enormity of the climate crisis uh, starts to hit us, the biodiversity crisis, the resource depletion crisis. And it can be so easy to feel overwhelmed and feel like you're not empowered and to feel like you don't make a difference. But I just want to share a couple of things to hopefully disavow people of that. So the first thing is, and this is something that nobody is talking about, 60% of all greenhouse gas emissions are directly related to household consumption. So that's you and me. Now, the problem is that at the moment, the data is presented to us by industry and, and using language and imagery that is not relatable. But I just really want everyone to remember that 60% of all greenhouse gas emissions directly related to household consumption. So what you do does make a difference. Billions of actions got us into this mess in the first place. So surely, by the same logic, billions of actions can help get us out of that. And Odeo is trying to play a role to help you on that journey. So giving away your surplus food came above electric cars, above solar power, and above a plant-based diet. And that's really simple. That's something that all of us can do, which is commit to reducing our food waste and know that is the single most powerful thing humanity can do to ensure we live in a less than two degrees warmed world. So Olio aims to help you with your food, but also with your non-food items. The typical American home has 300,000 things in it, and a typical British home is not far behind that. Now, you are not utilizing about 90% of that stuff. And that is the world's precious resources trapped in your home doing nothing. And so that is where the non-food section comes in. And soon we'll be launching an, an ability for our neighbors to connect with one another to lend and borrow items. Brilliant. We've all just got to really start thinking about consumption, how we consume and the power of our individual actions. And so there's a section in the Olio app, which we launched last summer called goals. And it essentially it's like Tinder for sustainable living. And we take you on a bit of a gamified journey to take a number of simple steps or simple swaps to reduce your footprint on the earth. And I think if you do that, you'll find yourself saving money, feeling healthier, feeling happier, more connected to your community. And it's just a win-win all round. And if we can just get more and more people doing that, then we can have the world that we all know we really want. Amazing. And I think if you're listening to this and thinking, whether you're in a corporate and you're thinking about how could we start to do this, Tessa at the beginning talked about that market sizing. There's a problem and it's huge. And actually there's so many ways that we could break this down and start tackling it. And that misnomer that Tessa again mentioned, impact doesn't have to be divorced from revenue. And I think when we talk about venture building, it can be very easy to focus on it as just investing for the return investment in terms of money. But actually there is a, a very real potential to get both. And I think Olio is, a, is such yeah. an inspiring example of that. But, but I'll go even further than that. The majority of business models that are in op operation today are not fit for purpose. And so again, making that real, 
there's uh, something called Earth Overshoot Day, which is the day in the year in which humanity has used all the resources that the Earth can replenish in a year. Now, last year, that was the 22nd of August. And so what that means is that every single thing, that every single one of us, seven and a half billion consumed after the 22nd of August last year was net depletive to the planet. So we have a whole entire economic system mm. that is based on endless consumption it's got waste baked into it. Everything's disposable. And that cannot continue. We are living collectively as if we have 1.75 planets at the moment. We're on track by the end of 2030 to be living as if we have three planets. And by 2050, we're on track to be living as if we have five planets. News alert, we don't have any of those. We have one planet. This is, I believe, going to be a golden age for innovation and entrepreneurship because the current model of extracting resources from the planet, utilizing them for 5% of their life and tossing them into landfill is no longer fit for purpose. It needs to be consigned to the dustbin of history. And so now is just a brilliant opportunity to reinvent what consumption looks like and the business models that go alongside that. When you start to try and make the business case for these things, which we all have to do if we want to work on them, you start to look at how consumers are, are not willing to put up with this anymore. And particularly if you look at Generation Z, who's the generation below millennials, they make me incredibly optimistic because <laughs> they're going to have huge consumption power. And they're starting to call retailers to account to say, we don't want to shop with retailers who aren't taking yeah. into account their sustainability, who aren't measuring and who aren't being transparent about not just how they're doing today, but tangibly, how are you reducing it? So it's exciting as well to hear that big companies like Tesco are taking that very seriously in their partnership with Olio. Yeah, Tesco, I think, are a great example of a large corporate that can see the prevailing wind. They can see the direction this is going in. And it's always better to preempt this stuff Mm. than to be uh, caught on the back foot. And I like to say to any large corporate, if you thought the digital revolution was disruptive, wait until the sustainability revolution hits you. And... We saw what the digital revolution did to the incumbents who did not innovate. But I think it's very exciting times. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for sharing so candidly. I've certainly learned a lot, so I really appreciate it. Pleasure. um, Please, if you're listening, go and sign up. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adventures in Frenchland. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please remember to like, share and subscribe so you never miss another episode.